Good morning, everybody. Great to see you this morning and worship together. My name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here. And before we begin our study this morning, why don't we just join our hearts in a brief word of prayer. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we ask that as we read your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and challenge us and encourage us to live more like you are calling us to live in your word. We thank you for this opportunity to worship you, to gather with those who love you, Lord, and with those who we love, because we're all part of your family. We ask that you would bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. So why should we pursue a life of wisdom? Do you know anybody who just sort of seems totally devoted to living a, a godly, biblically wise life in just about every area? There's a few people here at this church who sort of come to mind for me. And these are people who, when you might chat with them out on the patio, they'll tell you how excited they are because they're reading a book about how to manage their finances in a more biblical way. And they'll tell you how it's helping them and changing the way they use their money, and it's, and it's, and it's so wonderful. These uh, might be the same people who are always inviting you to join them for their Bible study. You know, maybe they meet every week with a group of people to read the Bible and discuss how do we live this out in every area of life. And maybe they're the same person, if they're the type of person I'm thinking of, who from time to time will invite you to come with them to a marriage conference. They'll be like, yeah, I'm going to this conference. You should come. We're going to learn about how to, be, uh, how to love our spouse in a more biblical, godly way. And if you're like me, then maybe at some point when you've observed these sorts of people, you've sort of asked yourself, well, why should I totally commit myself to living a godly, wise life? And if you've ever looked at them and sort of had to wrestle with that question when you see the way they live, the Bible has a response for that question. And what the Bible says is that you should pursue a life of godly, biblical wisdom because folly, or the opposite of wisdom, is a trap. One of the reasons that these people who are so dedicated to living godly, wise lives can look a bit odd to us at times is because the opposite of wisdom, sort of living a godless life, you might say, it can look pretty attractive. I mean, when this person comes to you and says, hey, do you want to join Financial Peace University with me? We're reading a book about how to manage our finances in a biblical way. So we're learning how to make a budget so we can steward God's money better and live below our means. And at the end of it all, we're going to have more left over that we can give away to other people. Do you want to join? It's probably, perhaps, a part of us that thinks, um, no, I'm okay. <laughs> I'm all right. In fact, what sounds perhaps better is, 
I'll just continue using my money the way I want to use it on what I want to use it on when I want to use it. Not only does that sound a tad bit easier than this class you're describing, but it also sounds like I'm going to enjoy it a lot more. In other words, there's something attractive about living a life of what the Bible would call as folly. When they come and invite you to the marriage conference with them, and they tell you, hey, the theme is humility and faithfulness. We're going to learn how to be more kind and loving towards our spouse in a biblical way, and how to not just be faithful to them, but even in our hearts to be faithful to them. There's a part of us that might think, hmm, sitting through those lectures, going through those breakout rooms, nah, I'm okay. I'll just, you know, continue treating my spouse the way I treat them, because as a matter of fact, if anyone needs help, it's them, not me. <laughs> and I'm faithful-ish to my spouse. As far as they know, I'm not trying to hurt their feelings or anything. And so not only does not going to that conference sound easier, and, but continuing to relate to my wife in not necessarily a biblical way, but in a convenient way, actually sounds in some ways a little bit better. And so there's something attractive. There's something alluring, in a way, about not living a wise life, but about pursuing what you might call a life of folly. And yet what the Bible graciously reminds us of, of course, is that as attractive and even as enjoyable in a way as it is to throw off biblical wisdom and just live your life the way you want to live it. As alluring as that is, it's a trap. We're going to start in Proverbs chapter 9 this morning. Proverbs chapter 9. And we'll start reading in verse 13 of Proverbs chapter 9. So as we start reading here, listen to how God tells us that we should pursue a life of wisdom because folly is a trap. He says this, starting in verse 13. It says, woman, the woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet. And bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. So, he describes folly. He, he describes um, godlessness as a person. He personifies her as this woman, and the author admits she's seductive. In other words, every, every opportunity you have to say, no, I'd rather not choose biblical wisdom, I'll do it a different way, well, the reason for that in large part that we're tempted to do that is because it looks good 
And not only does it look enjoyable, does it look rewarding, but she says, hey, stolen water is sweet. In other words, when you do it and you know it's wrong, it'll be even more exciting. And so it's tempting, and yet, of course, the whole proverb ends with a bit of a catch, doesn't it? It says, despite as alluring as folly looks, he doesn't know, it says, the last verse, that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. In other words, as tempting as the life of folly looks, as carefree and easy as it appears, in the end, it's a trick. It's a trap. It's actually a life that in time will prove to be one of pain, of suffering, and if you allow it to prevent you from having a relationship with God, eternal death. In other words, sure, there's something convenient and something rewarding about simply using your money how you want to use it on what you want to use it on. Feels good. However, what this proverb reminds us of is, hey, as much as you might enjoy the years of splurging and spending and selfish indulgence with your money without a care in the world to biblical principles, you just weren't made to live that way. And in the end, as time goes on, you will experience the pain, sorrow, and loneliness of a heart turned inward that you've done with your money. As convenient as it might be to be faithful to your spouse and loving to a degree so that you can also enjoy life in a bit of unfaithfulness, as convenient, as easy, and in a sense pleasurable as you might find that, what this proverb says is you're falling for a trap. That the farther you go down that path, in time, you cannot escape the reality that you were made by a faithful, loving God who created you to not be lonely and self-obsessed, but to be intimately known and loved. When I was a, a, um, a teenager, one of the pastors at this church took me out and a couple other young guys for coffee. And while we were there, he, he wanted to teach us something, as he always was. And so he said, hey, would you guys like my wallet? He said, I'll give you my wallet right now, and you can have all the money in it. So we were like, we knew he was trying to teach us something, but we're like, sure, we'll take it. So he took out his wallet, he handed it to us across the table, and, uh, and when we opened it, of course, it was empty. There wasn't even an ID in it. And he smiled at us across the table, and he said, what I just shown you, I'm paraphrasing, is a metaphor for sin. Sin, folly you might say, looks good and appealing. But he said, in the end, where it takes you to is emptiness, regret, 
and remorse. I once heard a, a radio personality read a letter that she had received from someone who'd written into the radio show. And I, I heard this when I was just working in a factory as a teenager, and, I, and it just stuck with me forever. This person had written in and said, I want you to share my story with your, readers, with your listeners if you can. Because he says, when I was a young man, I was married, and I had children, and there was nothing really wrong with my marriage or my children. <sighs> but he said, I was bored. He said, I felt stuck. And he said, so I decided to pursue self-fulfillment. He said, I left my wife and my children, and I felt that I was following my heart, he said. I found a new partner, and I started a new life. And he said, you know, I lived and I enjoyed myself, and it wasn't until just recently that the consequences of my decisions began to come home to roost. He said, a few weeks ago, I attended the wedding of one of my children who I had had with my ex-wife. And he said, as I was at the celebration uh, at this wedding, it suddenly occurred to me that I was just a guest in their family, that I didn't know my children on a deep level. And it suddenly occurred to me that I had a deep sense of regret that though I had chosen excitement and what I felt was followed my heart, I'd sacrificed something so much better. And he said, I'd like you to tell your readers not to make the same mistake that I made, to not think that the best way to live life is to simply pursue self-fulfillment. He said, in fact, looking back, I realize that oftentimes it's far better to sacrifice self-fulfillment to value the most important relationships in your life. Now, that's just one guy's experience, I know. It doesn't speak for everyone. But his story stuck with me, and I think it's a story that relates to this proverb that says, folly looks good. Not wanting anything to do with dedicating yourself to the hard discipline of biblical wisdom sounds attractive. But just know this, it's a trap. In the end, it leads to a life that's being lived in a way you were not designed to live. And in the end, if you let it prevent you from even knowing God, it leads to eternal death. And the good news is about wisdom, about rejecting that life of ultimate pain and sorrow, is that we can do it. You know, one of the reasons I think we get so stuck in the rut of, of folly, of just living the way we live, is because when we try to think of biblical wisdom, like totally dedicating ourselves to a godly life, it just seems so impossible. Maybe you think of, of those people who are so dedicated to godliness, and you just think, you know, I tried, I tried that before, and I failed. I tried getting my finances in order, and it was too overwhelming. 
Yes, I know, I tried to love my spouse and to improve my marriage, and it just didn't work. And even the thought of beginning to go down that path just seems like there's no point in starting. Because I've been living this way for so long, and to change just feels so impossible. But what we fail to realize when we have that attitude is that not only is wisdom not far off, not only is it not impossible for us to learn and develop and grow in godliness and wisdom, but wisdom, if she were a person, is not only close by, but her hand is stretched out, and she's waiting for us to take her hand and to learn insight, wisdom, and life the way it's meant to be lived. We're going to backtrack to the beginning of this chapter now in verse 1. And here we're going to see that wisdom is also personified here. And as we start reading here in verse 1, listen to how God reminds us to pursue a life of wisdom, in part because we can. It says this, starting in verse 1, it says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has set out her young, sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread. And drink of my wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. So, so wisdom is also personified here. And she also calls out to the simple, to the people like you and me who feel like we don't know anything and we don't know where to start. And she's also prepared a meal. But this is the meal of insight and wisdom and life. And she sends out people, she says, it says, to invite people like us, the simple, to come and learn how to live, to come and gain insight and understanding. And I'm so glad that this proverb and others like it are here, because I think we need to be reminded that wisdom is calling, that life as it's meant to be lived is nearby, waiting for us to take the first step and discover that we can grow in godliness, that we can grow in wisdom and in life. Sometimes on, um, on Monday mornings, I have a hard time starting my week. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Sometimes I sit at my desk on Monday mornings, and I just feel like I just can't. I can't even. I just can't. The week has too much ahead of it. And the thought of starting my task is just crushing because it's just overwhelming. There's too much to do. And the way I get over that, I have a little trick someone taught me. I just take out a piece of paper and I say, okay, it's too much, but I'll just do one thing. And so I'll just write the first thing on, on the list. I'll just write something and I make it really easy because I want to do it, right? It'll be like, find your laptop, and I'll turn around and I'll be like, well, there it is. Check that one off. 
and then I'll make another one. You know, like, make a list of what you need to do this week or something. Now check that one off. And here's what usually happens. After I've done two or three little check marks, I blink. I just blink, and it's Friday, <laughs> right? Because starting, believing that I could actually do the job was really the hardest part. And what I quickly find on Monday by 8, 10 a.m. or so is that it is doable. I can take on these tasks one at a time. And before I know it, I forgot I was even worried, and I'm just knocking out task after task, meeting after meeting, problem after problem. And I think when it comes to wisdom, I think there's a little bit of a parallel. I think that if we would stop believing that in those areas of life where we've struggled to grow so much, that wisdom is too far away, that it's impossible. But instead, we would simply ask God, as the book of James encourages us to, God, help me grow in wisdom in this area. If we would reach out, what we would find is that wisdom is close by, is that she's inviting us and calling out to us to come and learn. Maybe this week in your Bible study, you'll just take the first step of saying, hey, during the prayer time, I need prayer for my marriage. I need prayer to know how, what I can do to improve my marriage because I'm struggling. Maybe that's all you do. And who knows? Maybe someone or two people in that group who've been married a little longer and working at it for a while, maybe they come up to you afterwards after they've prayed for you for, for wisdom which is already really helpful, and maybe they share some of their experiences with you. Maybe they even invite you to that conference in a few months that they're going to about marriage. And maybe, maybe you just blink, and five years have gone by, and you've been to a conference or two, you've had godly counsel from friends, you've had prayer, maybe you've even read a book on biblical marriage. And in five years, your marriage looks incredibly different than it does today. In part, because you took this proverb seriously, that wisdom isn't as distant and impossible and far away as it feels like, but actually, she's close by, inviting us to come in and learn to live. Maybe you feel like you could never steward your finances the way God wants you to. Because let's face it, that can be difficult. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's a lot to it, and it's hard, and you don't have time. Maybe you just have time to sign up for the class. That's it. You don't even know how you're going to get there. You just sign up for the class. And maybe, maybe because you've signed up, you feel sort of obligated to show up. And maybe when you show up, you find that the baby steps, which is actually, I think, what they call it in the financial peace class, 
the baby steps of learning to manage your finances in a godly way are actually a lot more doable than you thought they were. And maybe because you took the first step and had the courage to believe that God was ready and willing to change your life with godly wisdom, maybe you blink. And in five years' time, you're in less debt, you have more savings, and you get to rejoice in the gift of generosity as you bless the lives of others. I had a, a friend who I met at this church, and I met him like the day after he became a Christian. Like he showed up at E-Free and he was like, I'm a Christian. It just happened. And it was so cool because he had so many questions. And he would come up to me and I didn't know anything. And he'd be asking me questions about prayer and about Bible study and about how do you make godly choices. And then I'd see him like get bad answers from me and go over and start asking someone else the same questions. Like he wanted to learn so bad. And it was so cool to see because he got plugged into a discipleship group with one of our elders here who just started pouring biblical wisdom into his life. And he just got plugged into the church. And over time, I got to see the transformation in his life with my own eyes. I got to see him change from this directionless partier to someone who loved the Lord, went back to school, and I visited him one day. He'd gone back to school to get training for a career, and I went to visit him, and I was amazed at what I saw. Not only was he there getting a career, working hard, but he'd started a Bible study on his college campus. Campus crusade club wasn't even there. Didn't matter. There was probably 15 students that him and others had corralled, met, and invited to this thriving Bible study. And when I think about just the transformation that I saw in his life, I'm inspired. And I think it's the kind of thing that this proverb is inviting us to. To say, hey, you who's simple, even you who feel so far from godliness and wisdom in certain areas of your life, just start asking questions. Just reach out to wisdom. And you'll find that she's there, and that God can help you grow in life the way it's meant to be lived, which, of course, is a successful life. We'd all like to succeed in life, not just in shallow ways, but we'd like to succeed in life as a whole, on the deepest level. We don't want to fail at life. And that's what's so precious about wisdom. Is the Bible says that when you find God's help to live a wise and godly life, you succeed at life. We're going to look at one more proverb, and this one's in chapter 16. Proverbs chapter 16. And we'll start reading in verse 3 here to this one short proverb. And it goes like this. As we read it, listen to what it has to say 
about success. It says, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. Now, he says, commit your work to the Lord, and your plans will be established. I like the way the NLT puts it. It puts it like this. Commit your actions to the Lord, and your plans will succeed. That sounds pretty good. I would like my plans to succeed in life. Well, this proverb says, then commit your actions or your work to the Lord. What does that mean? It means rely on Him, presumably, to live a godly, wise life. And what's the result? It says success. Now, does that mean success in like an everyday sort of way? Well, oftentimes it does, right? Oftentimes, if you work hard, like the Bible encourages you to, because you're working for God, you probably have enough supplies to meet your needs. Oftentimes, if you're loving and faithful to your spouse, like the Bible says, and, and you, you find God's help to do that, you have a better marriage than if you're not. You'll have a deeper, more intimate, more wonderful relationship. Of course, we're not naive, though. We're not naive to think that every time in every area of life, if you, if you rely on God to do something godly, then it's going to be successful, right? Of course, that's not the case. In fact, sometimes, sometimes it's precisely because you choose the godly path that life gets worse and that you meet utter failure, fired from your job, a spouse that leaves you, financial ruin. And so this is a general promise, of course, a general statement. However, I do think it's worth noting that even when you commit your way to the Lord, even when you rely on Him to live a godly life, and life seems to fall apart, you haven't really failed, have you? You've succeeded in God's eyes, which is really the only thing that matters. Picture Jesus. Was he a success? Well, in some ways, not really. Born into poverty, they think. Died in poverty. Murdered. Came to be the king of his people. And the sign above his crucified body said, the king of the Jews. Not exactly a raging success. But then, of course, when we consider what the Bible says, we have to think again. Because the Bible says that he died a death at a young age, yes, but it was a sacrifice for the sins of the world. The Bible says that not only did he come to be the king of God's people, but he is the king of God's people. That after he closed his eyes in death, he opened them in resurrected life that he currently sits at the right hand of the Father, and that he's coming back to rule and reign with all who believe in him. And so again, we have to ask ourselves, huh, was Jesus a success in life? And we'd be crazy 
if we said no. Because Jesus wholeheartedly committed his godly life to the Father. I'm sure in some ways he met success, deep relationships, joy, laughter. But even when his committed, wise, and godly life cost him his life, that was his greatest success of all, wasn't it? And so how about us? Do we want to live successful lives? Do we want things to generally work out well? Sure. But do we want life itself to be a success, even when things fall apart and go wrong? You know, my mother recovered from COVID, and thankfully she recovered and she's, she's doing well. But she got really sick. And... Uh, one night, while she was pretty sick, I happened to be asleep at her house in the living room. <clears throat> and I was suddenly aroused by a noise. I heard a bang. And you know, when you're trying to sleep and you hear a noise, you just if you're like me, you kind of talk yourself out of looking into it, right? I'm like, oh, no, 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 it was probably nothing. I'm just going to go back to sleep. But then your conscience is like, yeah, you should probably check on it, though. You know, it could be something. I'm like, no, no, it's nothing. But then I hear, I hear uh, my mother kind of moan. I hear like a, oh. And then I hear her heavy breathing in the kitchen. Now, that might sound alerting to you. But actually, when you have COVID, it's not weird to moan, right? I mean, when you have a bad case of a, of a sickness, it's, you moan for days sometimes here and there. It's not odd to breathe heavy, to be complaining, so again, I just thought, oh, I'll just go, I'll go back to sleep. She's getting something in the kitchen, you know. And then my conscience, you should probably just check, though, just to see. So finally, my conscience won out, and against my will, I said, Mom, is that you? Nothing. Mom, are you in the kitchen? Silence. She's ignoring me because she doesn't feel good. Mom, silence. So again, I argue with my conscience. I want to go back to sleep. I get up. I wander into the kitchen. I turn on the light, and my mother had passed out. She was so weak, so, had gone so long without eating, so affected by the, by the disease that she had lost consciousness there on the kitchen floor. So I scooped her up, of course, and I laid her down on the couch. And, and that evening, as she, she quickly regained consciousness, and we kept an eye on her, and we contemplated calling 911. You know, I was very disturbed, right? I was very sad, because it really hit me just how sick she was. But you know, even as I even as you play out the worst-case scenarios in your head, and you're so overwhelmed with grief, sadness, and possibilities, I also had this strange sense of comfort. I had this strange sense of peace that evening and the following days. And looking back, it's fair to describe it like this. I had this abiding sense that God forbid my mother should get worse and die. 
my mother has lived an extremely successful life. I wasn't comforted one bit by the fact that she had a great career, which she did. I wasn't comforted one bit by the fact that my mother uh, has a nice house in Diamond Bar that she worked hard for. She does. Didn't even comfort me that she's surrounded by loved family members and friends. She is. But what comforted me when I contemplated the worst was that my mother knows the Lord and has committed her life to Him, to relying on Him to live a godly, wise life. Has she done it perfectly? No way. Could I write a book about her faults and shortcomings? Of course. But I've also seen her commitment to the Lord and the way she desires to grow in Him each day. And as a result, I had a sense of peace that my mom is a raging success. And I think this proverb in part, as it reminds us of the general principle, hey, commit your godly life to Him and it will succeed. I think it also holds out a challenge to us to ask ourselves, am I relying on God to live a successful life? In the everyday things, but even in the deeper things, am I living a successful life? And if that's the life we want to live, then in part we need to remember the trap of folly. We need to accept that wisdom is close by, not far away and impossible, and she'll teach us to live. And we need to remember that that's when we find success. Now, the book of Proverbs, which we've been looking at, it's one of a collection of books, you might say, called Wisdom Literature in the Bible. So I just want to talk briefly about these wisdom books in the Bible before we wrap up. So we just looked at Proverbs, some Proverbs. The book of Proverbs, not surprisingly, is a book containing Proverbs, which are these short, pithy sayings designed to encourage us to pursue wisdom. And they're not too dissimilar from sayings you might hear even today. Perhaps you've heard the saying, look before you leap. Now, if I, if I told you, hey, look before you leap when you're trying to make an important decision in life, you probably wouldn't look down at the floor and be like, okay, where am I going to be leaping to, right? Because look before you leap is just a short, pithy way of saying, before you commit yourself to a course of action, consider all the options and outcomes, right? But that's not as memorable. And so we say, hey, look before you leap. Now, in a somewhat similar way, the Proverbs are written, not, oftentimes not to be taken absolutely literally, but as figurative ways and short, and short memorable ways to encourage us to choose what are godly, wise choices in life. And so, <clears throat> it's not wise to necessarily look at one proverb on a particular topic and say, okay, now I know everything I need to know about this topic because I have this proverb on it. Because it's short and it only tells you one part, right? When you're making a decision, I wouldn't simply say, 
look before you leap, and now you know everything you need to know about decision-making. And so since that's the case, it's helpful to look at the Proverbs and to compare them to each other to get a fuller picture of wisdom. And not only that, but to compare them, to balance them, you might say, with all of Scripture to help us have a full, more complete understanding of wisdom in any particular area because wisdom is the ability to make godly choices in life. Now, Job, of course, is another one of the books, wisdom books. It's largely a dialogue between Job and his companions. Job, as you know, is suffering in the book. His friends are convinced that he's suffering because of his sin, but he feels that he's innocent and wants to question God. You have to be careful where you jump in because you might jump in in the dialogue and miss the point. The point becomes clear when God shows up at the end of the dialogue. And when he shows up, he both corrects and he also, um, trying to think of the word, but he affirms Job. He both corrects him and affirms him. And when God shows up, it becomes clear that Job was correct, that he's not suffering because of his sin, that all suffering in life can't be traced back to sin. But he's also corrected in the sense that God affirms that his ways are above our ways, and that even when there's intense suffering that doesn't make sense, it doesn't mean that God doesn't know what he's doing and that his sovereignty isn't superior to our limited understanding. Ecclesiastes is another book. It's a wisdom monologue, and this book can be very confusing, of course, which is why it's helpful when you read the book of Ecclesiastes to keep the big picture of the book in mind so that when you're reading the smaller parts of it, you can try to see how they fit in and make sense to the larger interpretation of the book, which, of course, again, becomes clear when you reach the end of Ecclesiastes. The point of the book is that we should enjoy each season of life under God in a world that is unpredictable and ends in death. Song of Songs is the last one we'll look at. If you've ever read it, you've probably noticed it's a lengthy love song. It's written to encourage the wise choice of marital fidelity. Songs like this were routinely sung at weddings, probably, and banquets, and had a great meaning for those involved. The book suggests godly choices rather than just describing them. So it doesn't say the best way to live is an utter faithfulness to your spouse, but it displays the beauty and glory of a life lived that way. And in, and in so doing, encourages it. It suggests, counter to our culture, that romance is something that characterizes marriage. So let it be. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Dear God, thank you for your wise instruction that you give to us in life. Lord, we are proud, and we tend to think that we don't need much help, and we have things figured out oftentimes, God. But Lord, you're so gracious on those occasions when you humble us 
and you remind us just how little we know and just how much room we have to grow. And so this morning, God, I pray that you would indeed convict all of us of that and that you would encourage us, Lord, through your spirit and through one another and through your word to dedicate ourselves to growing in biblical, godly wisdom so that we might live life more and more like it was meant to be lived. We worship you this morning, God, and we give the rest of our service to you in praise for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.